to another episode of No Trash, Just Truth. No Trash, Just Truth is a podcast of Proverbs 910 Ministries. We're your hosts, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Welcome back. A few weeks ago, we talked about the prophet Jonah, the unevangelist. And like we said in that episode, the fact that Jonah got swallowed up in a fish wasn't the main point of the story. Jonah was told by God to go and evangelize to the people living in Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and he didn't want to go. Jonah knew that God is loving and merciful, so merciful, in fact, that he would save wretchedly wicked people who humbly come in repentance. And that was the last thing Jonah wanted for the wicked Gentiles of Nineveh. He didn't want them saved. He didn't want God to give him another chance. Nope. And once Jonah did go and witness to them, the citizens of Nineveh at that point in history did repent. Jonah's story took place in 760 BC. Fast forward 14, just 14 years later, when Tiglath-Pileser III took the throne in Assyria. And we see that the city of Nineveh and all of Assyria has returned to its wickedness like a dog returns to its vomit. Yeah, the Assyrians were brutal to their enemies. They gloried in their brutality. They even depicted it in their artwork, some of which you can still see in museums today. They were known for cutting people's heads, hands, and feet, and other body parts off. They flayed people alive. They trampled them underfoot. And they did it to both men and women. It wasn't just men they did it to. The annals of some of the kings record exposing the heads of their enemies as trophies throughout the city, flaying the skin off of people and using it to cover their city walls. And one picture even shows a defeated Arab king with a dog chain through his jaw being forced to live in a kennel. This wasn't wanton brutality. It was psychological warfare that was meant to inspire terror in people. Yeah, and it did. And Tiglath-Pileser III took things to a higher level of terror by creating a professional army. Under his leadership, Assyria conquered country after country. And in 722 BC, as we know, they conquered the northern nation of Israel. Tiglath-Pileser III is a king known for using the tactic of assimilation, which we've mentioned many times in different episodes. That was deporting people from the nations that he conquered and then filling their land with his own people and taking them back and assimilating them into his own country or other countries where his own people were. In fact, it's known that he enjoyed or it's said that he enjoyed this whole assimilation thing. And honestly, Rose, <laughs> it's a pretty darn smart and effective way to expand your territory. Yeah, and squelch any possible rebellions. Yeah. The wicked kings who came after Tiglath-Pileser continued on the same trajectory of wickedness. They were always striking terror in the hearts of people who were in their sight line and likely to be conquered. People were so deathly afraid of them that sometimes they just surrender without a fight. And as you can imagine, Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh, who once humbled themselves before the one true God, became prideful and arrogant as they became the most powerful empire in the world. And we've talked about pride in this series and how I think it was Kevin DeYoung says we should probably consider that the most worst sin 
Yeah. C.S. Lewis said the same thing and I'm sure many others. Yep. So a little more than a century after Jonah's preaching, God brings another messenger onto the scene. And that's Nahum. We don't know really anything much about the prophet Nahum himself, except that he's identified as the Elkishite. God gives Nahum his message through a vision, according to Nahum, verse 1. The book of Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. God sent Jonah to call the Assyrians to repentance, but Nahum's message probably didn't even reach Assyria. His message was for God's people, and that would be the southern nation of Judah. The Hebrew word Nahum means comfort or consolation. Nahum's prophecy is meant to comfort the nation of Judah. So why would Judah need comforting? Well, before the northern nation of Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC, they, along with the nation of Syria, asked for help from Judah, from their king Ahaz, and they said, stand with us against Assyria. Well, Ahaz refused to do it. So Syria and Israel became enemies of Judah and attacked and tried to overthrow King Ahaz. And you know that saying, Chris, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yeah, I do know it. I'm not sure if King Ahaz knew that saying, but that's exactly what he, he took advantage of. He made the enemy of Syria and Israel, which was Assyria at the time, his friend. The enemy of my enemy is going to be my friend. And how did he do that? by making Judah a vassal state of Assyria. Judah would be paying Assyria tribute taxes and Assyria would protect them. And this went totally against God's word to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, who had told Ahaz to trust God to destroy Syria and Israel, not to rely on foreign powers to do it. Not only did Ahaz put Judah under taxation to Assyria, he also went to lengths steeping them in the Assyrian king's idol worship. And Isaiah issued a warning to Ahaz about this. He said, the king of Assyria will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. And that's Isaiah chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. That didn't happen in Ahaz's time. In 716 BC, King Ahaz's son Hezekiah came to power in Judah, and he was a fairly good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to 2 Chronicles 29.2, because Hezekiah really wanted two things to happen. He wanted to bring religious reform to Judah, and he wanted to get Judah out from under Assyria's tribute taxes. So he got rid of the idols and led the people in a time of national repentance, and he rebelled and he stopped paying taxes. He stopped paying those tribute taxes to Assyria. Well, Rose, obviously not paying tribute taxes, brought some consequences. And in 701 BC, Assyria under King Sennacherib came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them, according to 2 Kings 18, verse 13. And then they laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, all of that was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that you just read. God brought Assyria all the way into Judah, clean up to Jerusalem's gates, or literally up to its neck. King Hezekiah, unlike his father, trusted in the Lord, though. And he relied on God, and God saved Jerusalem at that point. 
At that point, Jerusalem was spared. Yeah. But Hezekiah's son Manasseh came to the throne in 687 BC, and he was the most wicked king of all in Judah. Second Chronicles 33, 9 to 11 says Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And that's the end of the scripture. Manasseh reigned from about 686 BC to 642 and following a 10-year co-reign with his father. So he was carried off to Babylon during the 22nd year of his reign. And then later he was restored to his kingdom after he cried out to the Lord and after he repented while he was in exile. Yeah. Nahum's prophecy most likely came during Manasseh's reign between like 660 and 630 BC. Although some scholars believe it started during his father Hezekiah's reign or during their co-reign. But the exact date isn't what's important. No, it's not. Because of Judah's sin, God brought Assyria to punish his people. And we've said this type of thing over and over again. God does bring these nations to punish his people. But God always stands on his covenant promises and never leaves his people without hope. Nahum foretells judgment on Judah's enemies. And it's mingled with promises of hope for these war-weary, terrified people in Judah. The prophecy came at the height of Assyria's power. They were very powerful. They were very powerful and they were very prideful. By this time, their reach was extensive, including into Babylon. Babylon was not the superpower yet. Nineveh was the mightiest city on earth. Its walls were 100 feet high and wide enough to accommodate three chariots riding next to each other on it. I mean, imagine that. It's crazy to imagine that. Like, I was trying to picture that in my mind. Like, I can't. You got to think it's, what, at least 20 feet wide, maybe wider? Yeah, I'm thinking it's got to be at least, it's got to be more than that because they have to have some room in between. That's it's true. crazy. That's true. Its walls contain towers that stood 100 feet higher than the walls. So 200 foot towers. They didn't have cranes to put the rocks and stuff. And all of that was surrounded by a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. Nineveh, Assyria, seemed impregnable, Chris. Yeah. And the book of Nahum is only three chapters long. It's just a little book. Nineveh's destruction, which actually means all of Assyria's destruction, is decreed in chapter one, described in chapter two, and chapter three shows that it was absolutely positively deserved. Nahum 1 verses 2 to 3 starts the decree of destruction. It says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That's a message that a lot of people need to take heed of today, especially if they've been privileged to hear the gospel message 
and have turned away from it. The book of Nahum is not only a sequel to Jonah, it's a direct contrast to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah showed God's concern for the people of Nineveh, even people who are his enemies. We said in that episode on Jonah, as far as we know, they didn't come to God. He may have saved some, but they didn't come to God. No, and they had a quick turnaround if they did come to him. And 14 years isn't very darn long. No, it's not. And the book of Nahum tells us that although God is slow to anger, there is an end to his patience. There is an end to him putting up with sinful, unrepentant people. It's not going to last forever. Didn't last forever for them. It's not going to last forever for people today. I know. They reach the full measure eventually. And that's what we see about the Canaanites while the Israelites are, you know, in slavery in Egypt. We see that same type of thing here and over and over again. It's not going to be forever. He's not going to wait forever. No. The Assyrians were prideful and they were confident in their own military might. In Nahum 1 verse 6, he tauntingly asked, who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Rose for Assyrians relying on their own might, even those living behind Nineveh's huge, thick walls, nothing was going to protect them. Now, Nahum chapter one starts with God reminding Judah that he is sovereign over absolutely everything in the universe. Again, that's a common theme we see throughout all the prophetic books. The chapter goes back and forth, talking about God's judgment on the wicked and then moving on to God's protection for those who trust him. For instance, we just read verse six, talking about his wrath that he's bringing on his enemies. Well, verse seven says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The first part of this prophecy ends with these words. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Rose, I think to myself right now, I can't wait. New heavens and new earth, no sin will be there. It'll be utterly cut off. I'm longing for it. I am too. And I includes my own sin. Yeah. I'm not just talking about sin of other people. Me too. Me too. Probably my own sin more than anybody else's. Yeah. But this message of Nahum is meant to comfort Judah that the threat of Assyrian invasion soon will be over. Yeah. And the second part of the prophecy tells in vivid detail the destruction coming to Nineveh. It's like an eyewitness account and it ends with the words, and I'm quoting, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So the finality and the totality of the destruction is clear. I mean, God makes this pretty crystal clear. He doesn't leave any doubt with his words, right? No, there's no, there is absolutely no wishy-washiness here. No, no gray area here. (laughs) Nope. Nope. And this is not crying out for them to repent. Like it's over. This is already decided. And chapter three, like we said, it gives the detailed reasons why the Assyrians are going to be destroyed. 
violence, lying, greed, their seductive, corrupting influence throughout the region. All of that contributed to them being destroyed. Rose, some of that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds very familiar. It sounds like almost every government, if not every government in the world. Yep. And just in case anyone at that time was thinking, well, that's impossible. God, towards the end, reminds them of the Egyptian city of Thebes. And that was a city located on the Nile. It had very similar reasons to be confident that it could never be destroyed. And yet, guess what? It was destroyed. Nothing, nothing can or will thwart God's plans. Righteous judgment will come. I always think the height of stupidity is to think that's impossible or God's not going to do that. That's just really the height of stupidity. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and so arrogant. So arrogant, you're right. So what do we take from Nahum's prophecy today? There are people who are indifferent to God. They believe there might be a God They believe that they're such good people that even if the Israel, they got nothing to worry about because they've done enough good that they're going to get into heaven. They're prideful. They're confident in their own good deeds, just like Assyria was confident. Syria was confident in its power. And unfortunately, Chris, we know a lot of people who are just confident in their own goodness, even though there's really no such thing as that, but they believe there is. And we talked about pride being the most destructive sin. God hates pride. We might not like to think about it, but he doesn't just hate their sin. He hates the proud. You know, the old love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, God hates the proud. Proverbs 16, five says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And To quote Tim Challies, pride is first an attitude of independence from God. Mm. You know, we read that rhetorical question in Nahum is who can stand against God? We see that several times in scripture. Well, obviously not the strong and not the proud. The only ones who stand before God are those who have humbled themselves before God. We talked about Michael last week. Do what's right, love mercy, walk humbly with God and wait. Those who humble themselves before God and repent, those are the ones who can stand against God. There's so many allusions to revelation in this. Yeah, that's amazing. My dad passed away this week, as you know, and somebody was talking to me about, because I shared that I got to share the gospel with him one more time. I I don't know his, I don't know if he was saved or not. We have hope that he at least had small faith. He quoted verses with me, but I wanted to share what somebody shared with me about how they share the gospel sometimes. And this is what they told me. They said, sometimes when they're presenting the gospel to certain people, they tell them that there are two ways to get to heaven. Be totally perfect your whole life or be forgiven. And love that. person told, I know. And the person told me they say it that way because Option one is off the table and everybody knows it. Everyone, even the vilest of sinners admits that nobody's perfect. In fact, that's usually the first thing out of the person's mouth. Well, nobody's perfect. Everyone knows that they are sinful. So that only leaves one option. 
Our only hope is the forgiveness offered by Jesus, the only one who has kept God's required record of total holy perfection. That is a great way to start in to the gospel presentation. I loved it. So what else can we take from Nahum's prophecy? There's the very real terror of hell awaiting everyone who rejects God and for those who martyr God's people. Believers can take heart in the darkest of circumstances that God's reigning from on high. I know we always quote Charles Spurgeon, lay your head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. He hasn't left the throne. He will bring justice to everybody. Everybody will face justice. For some of us, we don't have to face our own justice because we get to face the justice of Jesus. Until then, do what we learned from the prophet Micah last week. Do what's right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God and wait on God. And Rose, that reminds me of the words from Jesus to his disciples in Luke 12, verses 32 to 37 say, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Such comforting words for today. Mm -hmm. Yep. If you're enjoying this series on the prophets, like we've kind of alluded to, over in 5 a.m. Theology, where we do a little discussion on parts of scripture as we read the Bible chronologically, we're also in the prophets. So we invite you, if you haven't already, to join us on 5 a.m. Theology if you want more of the prophets. And some of them we're not hitting here. We hit the major ones in 5 a.m. that we don't get to hit in this series. So we just wanted to invite you. And as always, we would greatly appreciate if you're enjoying this episode to subscribe to the podcast or to our channel, Proverbs 910 Ministries, and leave a review. Have a blessed day, everyone.